بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم التسليم على سيدنا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين وبعد الحمد لله we have reached the final class for the fiqh of zakat and we're reminding ourselves that a, a good amount of this is fardain knowledge individually obligatory knowledge not every single detail from what we've covered is necessary to know for a person to fulfill the obligation of zakat but depending on the financial complexity in their life they will have to know some of these details and because we want to cover as many bases as possible we talked about a lot of different issues that come up with the payment of zakat and this is the final class inshallah for this module uh, so we managed to do it in four sessions alhamdulillah well we'll see when we finish this one so so far we've learned quite a bit in these four sessions we learned of course the wisdom and the virtues of zakat the rewards for paying zakat and the warnings for neglecting it we talked a little bit about how zakat is structured and its purpose and how it's paid we looked at the terms that are used frequently in this topic we looked at the conditions for obligation meaning on on whom is zakat obligatory and then after that <coughs> pardon me we looked at how we calculate the zakat how do we determine zakat for gold and silver and other currencies and then we looked at zakat on liquid and illiquid assets such as stocks 401k cryptocurrencies property business inventory and the like so before we move on i want to make a few concluding remarks based on what we were discussing last week consider it an addendum or mulhaq so and this is kind of an istidrak on my part a kind of minor adjustment if you will to what i said last week a clarification as well as a correction we were talking about paying zakat on stocks and i could see everyone's eyes glazing over as we talked about that because it's very technical and complicated uh, it's not really easy to do that there's a lot of background knowledge one would need to have to get an accurate picture of what they owe for zakat in stocks that they hold and i mentioned the method or the two methods basically because with those two methods you are subtracting from that total amount things in those companies that are assets but which are used for making money right the tools of their trade which is not zakatable in itself that means that if you use that method or those methods you end up paying a little bit less zakat than you would if you used a much more straightforward method that a lot of people use so someone asked me about that last week and i wanted to mention it today just to clarify that uh, this option that may result in you paying more zakat overall but it's probably safer and it's definitely much easier you have to understand that stocks that you hold and uh, as investments paying zakat on them in determining how to do that and how much it's all ijtihadi it's all based on ijtihad of scholars and all of this ijtihad is based on qiyas is based on analogical deduction where they're doing qiyas from things like crops and trade and so on so you are entitled because it's an ijtihadi issue you are entitled to really pick whichever view you feel most strongly about or if you wish to pick this view because you end up paying more and you escape any possible gray area you can use this method what is that method it's very straightforward if you invested say $10,000 in shares then after one haul has elapsed one lunar year you're going to check your portfolio and if you see that your returns have given you say 12,500 that's what you have you will pay zakat on that amount very simple 2.5% of that total amount and every year every haul you're going to repeat that process this is definitely easier way because you just look it up 
There's no calculations involved except for the 2.5% of that total each year. If you use this method, you're probably going to pay more zakat than, you're probably over the amount that's required. Let's put it that way. But it's definitely easier and it's most definitely safer because you escape any possibility of miscalculating. Okay? So that's an option available to you as well. And I wanted to add this point, an addendum on the issue of zakat on collectibles too. Because uh, I had, I guess you could call it, sabaq lisan, you know, where you say something and you're, after the end of it, you're like, what did I just say? <laughs> and the issue is on paying zakat on collectibles. So let's say you have a 65 Mustang, you're, you know, it's a collectible car. If you purchase a collectible item as a store of value, you're not going to pay zakat on it yearly if it's just sitting in your garage or sitting in your house. You only pay zakat on that when you sell it. Now, last week I had this, well, I won't say what it is, you know, a little brain lapse. And I said that you're paying zakat uh, on it each year. I don't know why I said that. You're, you're holding it. It's a store of value, yes, but you're holding it as a collectible. You could use it, right? It's just sitting there in your house or in your garage. You pay zakat on that, on the sales price, not the price you bought it for. You're paying the, the zakat on the sales price once you sell it. So that's what I wanted to say. And I don't know why I said it otherwise. So an example to clarify. Khalid, once again, we bring Khalid into this discussion, the imaginary Khalid here. He buys a 1965 Mustang for $20,000. I don't know if that's a price you would pay for a Mustang, but just put the number there. He keeps it for 10 years and finally sells it for $100,000. He's only paying zakat on the $100,000. He's not looking at the value for which he paid the cost when he first bought it and paying zakat on that every year. Only on the 100000 once he makes that sale. So inshallah, I hope that's clear. Having cleared those two issues up, we can now uh, address a third issue that wasn't mentioned in the class but someone had asked me about at the end of the class. And it's a really important question, and it's a very good question. You are paying zakat on something once it's been in your possession, it's, been, it's at the nisab level or beyond, and it's been in your possession, tamlik, for over, for a hawl, one lunar year, right? So let's say you have, I don't know, you have two pounds of gold that you came into possession in uh, the month of Rabi' al-Awwal, the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal, you got two pounds of gold. The next 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal will be the end of that hawl. That will be one hawl completed. Now zakat is due on that two pounds of gold. But let's say in Rabi' al-Thani, you got five pounds of silver. And then the next Rabi' al-Thani, one year later, you're paying, the hawl has been reached. Now you pay zakat on that. But let's say you also have a salary and that's money in your checking and savings and that's continual and that's going up and down and, that, and say you started a new job you know, in, uh, in Shawwal months before that. And you know what I'm saying? The idea here is that you have different sources of income each having their own individual hawl. So if, if you're paying zakat on each when each one has reached their hawl you can easily see how this will get confusing. It's hard to keep up with what is what and when each has reached its individual hawl. So what do you do? How do you calculate zakat for multiple sources of income that have a different hawl each? Each have a different lunar period. You come into possession of this one in this month, this one in that month, and so on. The fuqaha, they call this mixed business. Mixed business. So they say that if it's difficult or impossible to maintain accurate record keeping and these ahwal, the different hawls, are difficult to track, what you will do is assign a single month in which you take inventory of everything and pay zakat all at once and make that a fixed date that you go back to year after year and you do a review of everything you have. Now most Muslims are doing this because most Muslims... I can not say most, but a lot of Muslims tend to pay zakat in Ramadan. 
That's why you see a lot of the zakat ads that pop up on the internet. Uh, and that's because these charity organizations are taking advantage of the month to collect that zakat. Muslims tend to do it in Ramadan. A lot of people do it in the last 10 nights. Some people do it particularly on the 27th night so that they're combining between fulfilling the fard of paying the zakat while doing it in an auspicious time. So if you have a set date, it makes things easier. You do want to calculate ahead of time, like say a few days before or a week or two before, uh, but to be as accurate as possible as of the date of your paying the zakat. So if you have any minor adjustments, it's, it's often good to round up just so you're in the safe area. But that's what you can do, right? Yes. Yeah, you, so the gold has a certain nisab, and let's say you come into gold in one month, and then two months later you get five pounds of silver, and then uh, two months after that you come into uh, $20,000 of an inheritance. Each of those have their own haul, right? So the haul of the gold will be one lunar year from the moment you receive it. The silver has its own haul, it comes two months later. And then the inheritance comes three months after that. So each one has their own haul. So calculating the zakat for each of them according to their, peer, their time can become confusing for people because they have lots of different sources of income that uh, increase and decrease and they come into this one, they come into that one. So one option is to basically do an inventory of everything all at once and assign that as your fixed date every single year and they just calculate from every source. And we're gonna see this in action uh, in the next few slides when we do a practical exercise. So that's all an addendum to what we mentioned last week. Now we move forward in the final part of this module. Our learning objectives for tonight are to put all this together. Basically look at a mock-up zakat calculation sheet. So it's kind of like a calculator, but I put it on the screen, and we can just look at the numbers. Then we'll talk about Zakatul Fitr, which is very quick and very easy because it's very straightforward. And then we'll look at those who receive Zakat, as well as those who cannot receive Zakat. So you've calculated everything, you have that amount of Zakatable income, now who gets it? How do you distribute it? Who gets it? Who doesn't get it? We'll talk about that. And then we conclude very briefly with a little discussion on the adab, the inner and outer etiquettes of paying the zakat. The things that you should be aware of in your actions when you pay it and aware of in your heart when you give that zakat. So this sli these slides are 28 plus pages, or I'm not exactly sure how long, but most of these slides are just from the calculation sheet. So it's pretty straightforward. Now, let's, I want to mention something very quickly about these zakat calculators. If you go online, go on Google and type up zakat calculator, you will find so many different options. And if you start to explore each of them, you find that they all differ in different ways. Each one is different from the other. And a lot of them, when they're calculating your zakat, based on the numbers you put, they are basing it on the Shafi'i Nisab, which is pegged to silver. Remember we said the majority of the ulama mentioned that currencies in the zakat calculations are pegged to gold. So the Nisab is gold, uh, not silver. So if you want to make sure that it's going to gold, verify. Verify that it's calculating it on gold and not silver. Another thing you want to be aware of with these zakat calculators, is you have to be careful. And I don't mean to sound jaded, but a lot of these zakat calculators are designed by the charity organizations that want you to pay zakat to them. And that includes, some that includes their overhead. That includes budgets, right? They're including, uh, for those who are working for the company as al-amirina uh, alayha, the collectors, and because of this, they want, I'm not making a blanket judgment on every calculator, so 
I'm just making a general remark, you have to be careful because a lot of them in the, in the calculations, the things you input, sometimes they're adding stuff that isn't really needed. Like they'll, they'll tell you, uh, put in your expected uh, tax return in, in, the, in the next six months. There's nowhere in the fiqh that you have to do that. There's nowhere. How, how would you know? You could go, go to your previous taxes and see what you got in your return and then input that. So why are they doing this? Obviously, they're doing it because when you put that in there, it calculates more zakat. They get more zakat. So there's no need for that. Um, they also will sometimes say, put in your prorated salary. So, okay, let's say you get paid uh, once a month salary, right? It comes into your bank on the first. If you're paying zakat on the 15th, they're saying, okay, well, you've earned 15 days worth of that. So it's like a good debt. So you should go ahead and put it in. There's no, there's no reason to do that. Uh, you don't have to do that. You just, you put the money in, you calculate what you have, because though you could argue it's kind of like a good debt, it's, a, it's kind of like takalluf, you know, they're, they're adding all these things. So just be careful. Uh, I would suggest that what you see in these slides present to you everything you could input, and you wouldn't need a calculator. You could just do it on paper. So let's look at that. So in the first slide, we have cash. And by cash, we mean dollars, basically. So we're, all, we're assuming all of this is U.S. dollars. So you have cash on hand, right? So that's the money you have in your house, in your wallet, under your bed, in the piggy bank, wherever it may be. The, the money you have in the change inside of your car, right? It's a few dollars, perhaps, right? Add that. So we have a number here. We have $5,000. Okay, then you have checking account, right? You're going to go to your checking account. Then your savings account. And let's say you have silver and gold. So you want to calculate the price of the gold and silver by gram. What is the current value as of that day? And let's say it's $1,000 worth of silver and $500 worth of gold. You calculate that. And... Let's say you're living in, a, in an apartment. Most, if not all, apartments require a security deposit that you get back when you move out. So that is it's, it's a good debt in a sense, or it's something that they're holding in trust. So you can add that when you calculate your zakat. Likewise, if you've given a down payment for hajj, like you paid half of the hajj cost, but not all of it, to lock down your, your spot with the Hajj group. Well, not anymore. But let's say that was still going on. Uh, you would include that. So those kinds of things. Refundable deposits. And good debt. Good debt you could easily get back if you called the person up. So you've added all of these things together. And you get a total of $21,750. You know, the numbers here don't matter. It's, you do the calculations and whatever comes up, comes up. But the list tells you what you should look for in the matter of cash. So we've added all that up. It's 21750 Now we're going to look at the investments that we have. Now, you may not have all of these, but here's a good list to go by. So there's the net value of the business inventory and accounts receivable. So if you have a business, you want to calculate that business inventory that's left over. And you also want to figure out the accounts receivable. So, you know, you have these contracts and this and that company, they're good for it. They're going to pay you at the end of the quarter or whatever. It's a good debt. So you're going to calculate that too. And that comes up to 15000 in our calculation. You also want to add the aggregate value of rental income. So let's say you have a property. Uh, it's, let's say it's a house and you're renting out that house. So you're going to add the aggregate value of the rental income, meaning the money you get from rent. Now, you're going to exclude that if you already included that in your checking and savings. I excluded it here because I'm operating under the assumption that the person calculating their zakat gets all of that rental income directly into their bank. So they've already accounted for it in their checking or savings. So it's zero here. There is now the 
CRI, Zakat, liable amount of shares, or the aggregate value of shares. So let's just simplify it and say, you went to your portfolio, you saw that it was 5,500 from your 5,000 investment. So you just put the total amount of what you have there in the portfolio. And if you have dividends, you put the zakat liable dividend amount. For us, it's $50 if you have that. Post-tax 401k IRA distributions. Okay, we mentioned there's two methods for this, right? Either you do it yearly or you do it at the end once you've cashed out and you've retired and you have access to it. For our purposes, we're just going to put it, just to put it here. All right. Uh, same thing for cryptocurrencies. So you're going to go to your wallet, your crypto wallet, your hot wallet or cold wallet or however you're storing that. And you want to see what is the current uh, value of the cryptocurrency in the U.S. dollars. Well, you know, hopefully you've, you know, hopefully the market hasn't busted and you're making a little bit of profit, you know. And let's say you have 6000 from the 3000 you invested a few years ago. So you have $6,000. I mean, it's equivalent to 6000 U.S. dollars. Put the equivalent there in U.S. dollars. And let's say you have some artwork, you have some antiques. Let's say you have that used car that you were holding, right? And you sold that collectible and you got $8,000 for it, right? Assuming it's not in your bank account, right? Let's say it's just, let's say it's not in your bank account and it's not cash that you already counted up, right? It's just somewhere else. You add that. That gives you a total of $134,550. Again, the numbers don't matter. The idea is just looking at these different things to be aware of as you calculate your zakat. Yes? With the business inventory, do you count it as what you bought it for or what you're planning to sell it for? If you're selling retail, you calculate the retail value. If you sell wholesale, you calculate the wholesale value. It depends on how you're selling it. Yeah. Because it's basically, it's going to move. So you're calculating the value of it as you sell it. Okay. So that's investments. Now look at these two slides we just covered, cash and investments. That's really what you have, but you're not done. You also have to calculate your, expensive and, your expenses and liabilities, and you're gonna deduct these from the total. So on a separate sheet, you wanna figure out, okay, you have a monthly mortgage or rental payment that's due, deduct that from this total number. So let's say your mortgage is 1800 a month or your rent. You put that there. That month's utilities, because that money's already gone, 700. Transportation and fuel, home insurance or renter's insurance, auto insurance, medical insurance, right? The reason why we say that rent, mortgage, utilities, and so on are deducted is because you entered into an agreement about them that means they are debts. Remember we said that when you're calculating zakat, you are, you deduct the debts. And these are the monthly debts that are recurring like this. Uh, so you're not taking out the whole entire cost of the house. You're just, just for that amount in your agreement. So you'll calculate these things, whatever's considered a debt that's coming out monthly, right? You take that out. So when you add up all these numbers, you have $4,970 in expenses and liabilities that you've deducted. But we're not done because there's a couple other things to add. There's property tax, right? Think, I always think of these things as like, you know that person you see in the cartoon, they, they take them upside down and hold them by the ankles and they, they just shake them and all the change falls out. That's kind of what a lot of these things are. Property tax, Think about it, you owe that. It's an unjust tax, but you owe it anyway. So you deduct that. And let's say you have speeding tickets that you haven't paid and you have fines that you've accrued. Well, those are debts now. So you gotta deduct those too. So let's say you deduct $100 for some speeding ticket. It's a debt. So that's 2,100 there. So we have 4,970 plus 2,100. Uh, before we go on to the tallying this up, we want to address something 
uh, about the nature of the earnings. If a person has haram earnings from interest-bearing uh, bank accounts or transactions or investments or the like, you have to deduct that from zakat. We're not even talking about what you should do with it and not get involved in it, obviously. But let's just say that you have some interest in your, your savings account. Maybe you didn't even ask for it. This is very common. You, you get an account, you didn't ask for it. You look, oh my gosh, this came. What do you do with that? You're not going to add that to your total value. You're going to take that out because that is dirty money. You're not going to use that. But it begs the question, if you take it out, what do you do with it? You can't use it for yourself either. You can't use it for zakat and you can't use it for yourself. So what do you do with it? The ulama say that you have to get rid of it because it's dirty money, but you don't necessarily want to give it to a person who's taking dirty money. So if you want to use that money, and you, or you have to use that money, spend it on some public welfare project. To fix potholes or to build something, right? A parking lot, uh, public restrooms, cancer research, something that is for the general welfare and is not going to a specific person. The second thing they say is if you take that dirty money out, because you're not paying zakat on it and you're not using it for your own benefit, you, when you give it to an entity, you're not giving it with the intention of sadaqah. Because sadaqah is pure, right? So you cannot say, I intend charity with this. You're not, you're not giving charity to anyone. You're just getting rid of dirty money in a public works kind of project that's not going to a person. Uh, not to say that it can't go to a person, some fuqaha allow that, I'm just giving you the safer option. So deduct those things if you have them coming into your life. So you've calculated the cash, you've calculated the investments, you've looked at the expenses and liabilities in this chart, you've added up all these numbers, let's put it all together. Now, maybe we could have someone checking my numbers, I think they're correct, I crunch them. Our cash total is 21,750. The investments total 134,550 and the expenses and liabilities total $7,070. So that means if you're adding the the two columns, column 1 and 2, you're adding cash total and investments total, that total zakatable income before subtracting expenses and liabilities is $156,000, uh, $156,300. But after you deduct that 7,070, which is for the liabilities and expenses, your total zakatable income comes out to $149,230. After that, what do you do? You just figure out what is 2.5% of that. 2.5% of that is $3,730.75. You can give $3,731 just to round it off. And that's essentially how you do it. You know, crunch the numbers, be diligent, double check, triple check, take account of the liabilities as well. And if you do this, inshallah, you will have accurately assessed what you possess and calculated your zakat, and you have now a number and you're going to take that out of whatever source you want, whether it's the cash, whether it's whatever. You're going to take that money and now you're going to pay it. It's no longer your money. It is no longer your money, which means you don't get to decide just who, just anybody gets it. It has to go to very specific types of people. And we're going to talk about that, inshallah. So we've done all the work the theoretical understanding, calculations, and we put it all together in this chart, and we have the money ready to pay, who gets it, how do we get it to them? How do we fulfill that obligation Allah has put upon us? But before we do that, let's talk about zakat al-fitr. And I'm only putting this before the recipients because the recipients is a little bit detailed. Zakat al-fitr is included among the fard'ain knowledge because zakat al-fitr is wajib, it's obligatory. And what is the purpose of zakat al-fitr? 
people call it uh, zakatul fitr or fitra or fitrana. These are all different terms. Sadaqatul fitr is used. The purpose of zakatul fitr is that it wipes away the sins that we have earned during the month of fasting in Ramadan. And for the excesses or the misuse of our tongue, saying things that we shouldn't have said or doing things we shouldn't have done. It's a means of kafara, of wiping away the sins. It's also a means of bringing happiness and joy to the poor who also want to be happy on the day of Eid. So it serves these two purposes, one for us in getting rid of sins and bringing joy to the poor among the Muslims who also want to have a good day on Eid. It's wajib on behalf of oneself and on one's dependents. So you as a, a husband, you are responsible for paying zakat al-fitr for yourself and everyone you are financially responsible for. So that means your wife, your children, even an infant, and anyone who's living under you that you're taking care of, that is your dependent, you pay zakat al-fitr on their behalf. So what are you doing what are you doing here classically in the books of fiqh they talk about what is used for zakat al-fitr and classically it is supposed to be foods it's supposed to be food and usually you'll hear things like 2.2 uh, uh, kilograms of wheat or flour or rice or some staple grain that is used in that locality Right, so that's if it is a grain. You could also do 4.4 kilograms of raisins, dates, or barley as well. That is the asl, that's the basis, right? That's within all of the four madahib. The basis is to use food. But imagine if everyone brought bags and bags and bags of rice and flour to the masjid for Eid. We'd have a mountain of grain and how many people would take that grain and bring it home for their happy day of Eid? What happens in many parts of the world where people do that, people will bring the bags of rice and give to poor people, and the poor people will go and sell the bags of rice to get a little bit of money to buy whatever. So though that is the basis, the Hanafi school is of the opinion that it is perfectly valid to pay zakat al-fitr in the monetary value of those items. So the value of, say, five plus pounds of rice, the value of this much wheat, the value of this uh, staple in money can be given instead of the actual food itself. And this is unique to the Hanafi school. It's not shared by the other three schools, but the umum al-balwa, because of the general difficulty of distributing food in this day and age, you find that uh, in many of the other madahib, the living fuqaha of the other schools start to adopt the Hanafi view. Because it's simply more convenient and it fulfills in a greater sense or an easier sense the maqsad, the purpose of zakat al-fitr. So that means you pay the money and Basically, it's recommended that you pay it before the Eid. If you paid it after it's makru, you want to pay it beforehand. So that, because obviously the purpose is for the money to go to people who, who want to enjoy themselves on the day of Eid. So if you're paying it after Eid, it kind of defeats the purpose. You give it before Eid, it can be distributed to those people who are in need, who can use that for enjoyment. So that's really all there is to say about zakat al-fitr. It's pretty simple. And the people who receive that are the same people who receive zakat. So that brings us to the important topic of who gets the zakat. Now the basis for the recipients of zakat is found in Surah At-Tawbah, the ninth chapter of the Qur'an. Allah explains in this verse the eight categories of people who are entitled to receive zakat money. Anyone who is outside of these eight types uh, do not receive zakat. And we'll talk about some of those as well. So, إِنَّمَا الصَّدَقَاتُ لِلْفُقَرَاءِ وَالْمَسَاكِينَ وَالْعَامِلِينَ عَلَيْهَا وَالْمُؤَلَّفَةِ قُلُوبُهُمْ وَفِي الرِّقَابِ وَالْغَارِمِينَ وَفِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَبِنَ السَّبِيلِ فَرِيرَةً مِنَ اللَّهِ So, Allah says that the zakat 
collections are for the poor, the destitute, and those who administer them, and for reconciling hearts, and for freeing slaves, and for those in debt, and in the path of Allah, and for the traveler in need, and obligation from Allah, Allah is all-knowing, most wise. So, before we talk about those recipients, let's just exclude those who cannot receive zakat. Who do I not give zakat to? Who do I give zakat to? And who is the best to give zakat to out of all of these eight categories? Because not all equal. So, let's get rid of those who can't receive it first. The, we know that those who cannot receive zakat include the rich, the agniya, the able-bodied worker, and we'll define that shortly, your own family members, with some detail, the alul bayt, the family of the Prophet wasallam, do not receive zakat. And non-Muslims do not receive zakat unless they are from the category of al-mu'allafatu qulubuhum, those whose hearts are to be reconciled, mentioned in Surah Tawbah. And foster children do not receive zakat because they're basically the dependents. Now, let's look at these a little bit. The rich do not receive zakat. The Prophet wasallam said zakat is not permissible for the rich, the able-bodied, and the capable. So who, the rich we know, financially speaking, they have more than what they need, so they don't receive zakat. What about the able-bodied worker? The able-bodied worker is defined as someone for whom employment opportunities are present. There are jobs available, and that job or jobs are halal for them to do, Islamically, and they're able to do it without undue hardship, and it provides enough for them for their basic needs and the needs of their dependents. So if a person fulfills all of these qualities, let's say they're asking for zakat, there's job opportunities available to them, they're all halal, they are strong enough and capable enough to do those jobs, and they pay enough to take care of them and their families, yet they still say, no, give me zakat, we say hit the road, go get a job. Because the opportunities are right there in front of them. It's the means of sufficient income are right there, but they're turning away from that, and they're just asking for zakat. They don't get it. Likewise, family. And when we say family, we want to clarify who we mean by family. There is an ijma, a consensus among the scholars, that it's not allowed to pay zakat to a family member for whom you are already Islamically responsible for. So this is speaking primarily to men, to husbands, to sons, fathers, and so on. That means that anyone who is under your care from your iyal, your wife, your children, if your parents are living with you and they're not taking care of, they're not doing their own thing, Anyone that you have to provide for Islamically as an obligation, you do not uh, give zakat to them because you're already responsible for them. You're already duty-bound to care for them financially. So you're not giving zakat to them. That means no zakat to your mother or father because if, I mean, often the case is they live independently of us. But Islamically, if they ever fell under hard times or they wanted to come live with us and care for us to care for them in their old age, that becomes a duty. That's the reality. So you don't give zakat to them. What about a wife giving zakat to her husband? Is that allowed? It is. Because the wife is not financially responsible for the husband. right? So the wife, if she had the extra money and the husband fell under hard times, she would be allowed to give zakat to her husband because she's not responsible for him financially. And likewise, any family member for whom you're not responsible for Islamically, you can give zakat to them. So your, let's say your brother, right? So let's say you're the husband, you know, your father, your husband, and you have a brother who's fallen under hard times. He's family. Can you give him zakat? Yes. Because you're not responsible for him. Islamically, his nafaqa is not a duty on you, right? 
Okay, what about, okay, what about you as a father? Can you give a zakat to your uh, 10-year-old son? No. no. Why not? You're still responsible for him. Okay, what if he's 20? Uh, he says hit the road. Yeah, go get a job. Yeah, if he's able-bodied, tell him to get a job. But let's just say, okay, let's say he's hit hard times. So he had a job or, you know, he's struggling. Something happened. Can you give him zakat? As a father, you can. Because once he has attained the age of maturity, he is no longer your financial responsibility. And this is a bitter pill for young men to swallow, right? Because technically, technically, you as a young person, once you hit puberty, your parents don't have to pay anything for you. You have to just go out and earn. They're not going to do that. They're not going to put you out in the street, inshallah. But, you know, technically speaking, it's not wajib anymore for you as the father to spend on your uh, child who's attained the age of puberty. Your, your son, your son. I mean, that, that's, I mean, their state, whether you decide to give them a zakat or not, is a different thing. It's just, well, this is for the father, isn't it? Because never is it the financial duty of the mother to provide for the son. So for her, it's always a choice, no matter what's going on. But for the father, he would be entitled to, if he wanted to, because the child is no longer a child. Yeah. Uh, from my understanding, yes, because you are, unle well, here's the question. If they are under need, there has to be among the siblings, people who are taking care of them. So if you contributed to that, that should be no problem. But if it all falls on you, then it becomes a duty on you and it wouldn't, you wouldn't be giving them zakat. So really it's brothers and sisters or the sons who have reached the age of adulthood and could re who would be a recipient of zakat. They would be one of the eight categories, right? They could receive zakat. Um, the daughter, this one, uh, if she, when she reaches the age of puberty and beyond, uh, as long as she is living in the household, she is the father's financial responsibility. If she gets married, she is no longer the father's financial responsibility. It is the husband's her husband's financial duty to take care of her. The nafaqa is upon him. If they fell under hard times, in that case, that possibility exists. But if she was to get divorced or if the husband was to die, it would return back to the father as the financial obligation of caring for her. So yeah, you have to be careful here in, in how you consider who gets the cat or not. But basically your brothers and sisters, you can give them. Unless... Uh, these people all become your obligation to care for, then no. The other people who don't get zakat are the family of the Prophet Sallallahu the Alul Bayt. And there's different definitions what constitutes the Alul Bayt. And for our purposes in fiqh, we are defining them as Banu Hashim as a collective. Broadly speaking, Banu Hashim. And the reason why they do not receive zakat is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has forbidden it for the family of the Prophet to preserve their dignity in honor. But this means that their poor are to be cared for from the Baytul Mal of the Muslims, the public treasury, or the Khums. Now, of course, the Latter day Fuqaha do have some discussion about what happens for the Ahl Bayt if they're in a time or a place where there is no Baytul Mal, there is no Khums, and they fall under hard times, there has to be a collective body that's looking after the interests of the Ahlul Bayt to keep them from taking Zakat. Where money is provided, support is provided as needed, but it's not uh, Zakat, right? So who does get Zakat? We've kind of eliminated those who don't get it. Who does get it? We see in the verse, Allah mentions eight different types of people. And we want to talk about each of them and, and, and who they are and their qualities and offer a few caveats here and there. And I want to be mindful of the time. 
of course. We're going over the time slightly. So this is the list taken from the verse, the Arabic uh, names and then the, the translations. Let's talk about each of them. The first two, Al-Fuqara and the Masakin, these two constitute the majority of people who receive zakat. These two types of people. The poor, the fuqara, are those who do not possess the sustenance of a year. Th okay, think about that. That means, let's say a person lost their job today. Do they have enough to pay their rent and their bills and the gas and food and utilities and everything month to month to last them from now until one year? I would venture that most people don't. So that means that the fuqara is a very broad category and the fuqara may even be paying zakat themselves. So you can pay zakat and also receive zakat, right? That's a very broad category. The masakin are those who do not have much of anything. They're very, they're kind of down and out. It's, it's month to month, mouth to mouth, really. Now of these two, of course, the latter are more deserving of zakat because they have very little resources, of, resources, if any. So when you're looking at who receives the zakat, the general principle is that if any person doesn't have sufficient means to live for themselves and their dependents, they, give, they get zakat even if they do have some other forms of wealth on hand. Like the person who has that antique car, you know, do they have to sell it to get zakat? Not really. If they fall in hard, under hard times, it's temporary, inshallah, they can receive zakat. They're not forced to sell off everything and to humiliate themselves by proving that they've sold off everything before they receive it. So between these two, the mesakin are more deserving because they don't possess much of anything. Uh, collectors, they can receive zakat. And the reason why they receive zakat, the people who have the job of you know, traditionally during in an Islamic uh, society, they will be given the job to go to village to village, to house to house, to tally up the zakat, to collect it, to transport it, and all of that. The reason why they receive zakat is to remove the temptation to steal from the zakat money and also to pay them for the work they're doing, going from place to place. Now, we don't really have that anymore. The zakat falls completely on you. No one's going to force you to do it. You're all on your own. You just have to have that taqwa. So there could be a person who's employed by an organization or a government to oversee the collection and distribution of zakat, and they can get paid for that. But they have to be mature, they have to be trustworthy, and they have to know the basic fiqh of zakat and have the resources to get answers, uh, que uh, questions answered when needed. And it can also be done by masajid. They can appoint someone to do it, but you have to be careful because there is a possible conflict of interest. Because if the masjid appoints someone to collect the zakat and also to distribute the zakat, there's a possible conflict of interest. There has to be clear policies to prevent uh, any misuse of zakat funds. So some of the fuqaha say that that collector should also be from the category of the poor, the masakin, looking for work. And they can't, get, they can't accept gifts given because that, would, that could corrupt them. And you can't give uh, the largest chunk of zakat to the collectors. It's a, very, it's a much smaller percentage. Uh, an eighth, some of them say, an eighth of the zakat funds would go to the collectors. And the masajid who do this have to be very careful. And the key is always transparency and accountability. That's the key for any endeavor that is a collective endeavor ran by uh, a community, transparency and accountability in matters of money. Other categories are the mu'allafa, qulubuhum, which means those peoples whose hearts are to be reconciled to Islam. Now in the early days, in the time of the Prophet wasallam, the mu'allafa would be those people who just became Muslim or these Bedouins who are close to being Muslim, or they just became Muslim, and the money was given to them to solidify 
their Islam, to strengthen their Iman, to bind them to the community by giving them some financial support, right? It was mu'allafa, here it means to bring those hearts together, to bind them, to reconcile them to the faith. And that's because preservation of Iman is one of the main objectives of Sharia. And that applies to people who are born Muslims, new Muslims, and even non-Muslims who are close to becoming Muslim or possibly accepting Islam. There is a difference of opinion among the fuqaha about whether non-Muslims uh, in this day and age can receive zakat. Are they considered mu'allafatu qulubuhum or not? You know, some of the fuqaha say no because you could get a non-Muslim who comes every year asking for zakat. They have no intention to become Muslim. They just act like they are to get the zakat. But at any rate, it's really a case-by-case -case basis. If the person seems like they're very close and you, they, maybe they need some financial help and you think that by giving them some zakat money it will ease their burdens and also show them the generosity of, of Islam in this command of zakat, it could bring them to Islam, you could give them some zakat. Um, I think in this day and age, the, the primary recipients of zakat in this category would be new Muslims because there are a lot of new Muslims who fall under financial hard times. A lot of new Muslims are kicked out of their homes or they are struggling with various things. And when, if they receive some zakat in the beginning of their Islam, it helps bind them to the community, it warms their heart, and it ends up strengthening their faith, inshallah. So you can give zakat for that category. The other category is firriqab which is manumission or freeing slaves. And that is to free slaves or in our day and age to, to spend money to release children from child trafficking, right? Don't think that slavery has ended. Don't, there's probably more slaves today than there was 500 years ago, right? Slavery is a human phenomenon. It's always been here and it probably always will be under different names and different definitions. But if a person find someone in that situation, they can use zakat money to free them from bondage. Al-Ghadimin, uh, this is an important one, to give zakat to people who have debt. This means the debts of people who are living paycheck to paycheck or credit card debt uh, or medical bills that come upon them that they're struggling with. Utilities, they're, they, they're struggling with paying their bills, right? They're falling under hard times. You can pay zakat for these people to take care of those debts. With some caveats, can a person come to you and say, hey, I bought this, uh, I bought this uh, massive widescreen monitor and I'm in debt. Can you give me a zakat so I can pay off my monitor? You know, it's, it's questionable. It should be something that's worthwhile, that's a legitimate need, right? You can pay zakat to them if they lack enough funds to pay their debt. And you can pay that zakat to them if they lack enough, uh, if they lack the money, and if the debt was incurred by some halal permissible in. If they come saying, I have a, a gambling debt, no zakat for paying the gambling debt. They just have to deal with that collector. Hopefully it's not someone who means to talk business in a dark alleyway at night, but no zakat for those kinds of people. And it has to be currently due. It can't be some future debt that hasn't taken place. So, and basically a person who's under hard times and, you know, as, as a masjid, if you have a person collecting zakat and they're verifying who gets it, they can pay zakat to an individual by paying off a bill, right? They can pay a rent, they can pay an overdue medical bill, to help relieve them of the debt, and they can ask to verify by requesting that medical bill or whatever it is and paying it on their behalf instead of giving them the money directly. Completely valid. So, save your question, inshallah. All right. Uh, this, this last one is, uh, well, there's two more, but the last one is a bit, uh, it's a bit sticky. It's a bit controversial. Uh, among the recipients of zakat are fi sabirillah. When you hear fi sabirillah, 
in the context of zakat, it is referring primarily to jihad as physical, martial struggle, uh, which is jihad qitari, not struggling in da'wah and things like that. That's the primary meaning of fisabilillah in this verse. So this means that uh, non-conscripted soldiers who are fighting under a legitimate Muslim ruler and who have no salary or stipend of their own can receive zakat. Where are those people? I don't know. If they, if they exist today, uh, and if they do, you know, who knows? But those are conditions that you're not going to find in most people. So it's a rare category. But in today's age, it's actually been expanded to include others who do not fit that description. And this zakat can also be used for the cost associated with the military. So their equipment, their armor, and so on. Now, where the controversy lies is in the meaning of feasibilillah and how it has been expanded by some scholars, especially in the latter period. Some of them have expanded feasibilillah to include any means to establish Islam. So that means feasibilillah is in da'wah, feasibilillah is in educational efforts, feasibilillah is in building schools, and so on. Is there a basis for this? There is. In the classical fiqh tradition, there is some basis for this. However, the modern way it is expressed makes it very open to abuse, right? And this is why it is, it, this is my, of course, my opinion and from my teachers. This is the view that I have that when you are paying zakat, you want to make sure it's going to human beings and not objects. You're not paying zakat for audio equipment that's going for a class recording that is da'wah, calling others to Allah. You give zakat to people, perhaps, in that category, but not to things. And I think it has to be clear that it's to people and not things, because otherwise, would you pay zakat for me to buy a Bugatti? that I will use to transport my da'wah pamphlets and books, that I will drive around to make people realize, you know, Islam is attractive, and maybe you can drive a nice car too if you become a Muslim, and here's a da'wah pamphlet. Would you give me zakat for that? No, you shouldn't, right? It shouldn't go to the car. It can be abused, and it can be overstretched like this. So it should be given to people, not things. Now, I want to present to you a quote and this is, a, this is a very interesting quote. This is coming from Imam al-Sawi in his Hashiyah. It's a text in Madiki Fiqh. And he says, uh, If the rulers prevent scholars from their right of the Baytul Mal, because traditionally their ulama need to be independent and to focus their time on teaching, <coughs> researching, writing, educating, and raising up generations of scholars, giving fatwa, and so on. If the rulers prevent those ulama from the right of Baytul Mal, to take care of their needs. It is permissible, he says, for them to take zakat no matter what, whether poor or rich. In fact, he says, they have even more right uh, than the aforementioned categories. Imam al-Sawi is speaking in the latter day period in Egypt. He's basically saying that because uh, in a society, when you have a large body of ulama, when, when real grounded Islamic knowledge saturates a place, it fulfills one of the great objectives of Islam, which is the preservation of deen and assisting the people in knowing the halal and the haram and guiding them to Allah Ta'ala. So if there is no Baytul Mal assisting them, those scholars can receive zakat because they are fulfilling this function of calling others to Allah Ta'ala. So this passage could be an argument in favor of using zakat uh, or giving zakat fi sabirillah for those who are not in a physical jihad, but those who are spreading Islam. But again, is going if you take that interpretation, it goes to people, not things. So you be very careful there. To people and not things. So no zakat for chandeliers in the masjid. It goes to a human being. And with that, we go to the last one, which is the Ibn al-Sabil, the wayfarer. Uh, the wayfarer is basically a traveler 
who left his land and doesn't have enough money to get back home. And this is a person who's out of cash, but if he has a credit card and other means to money, it's not, he's not eligible because he has the means to get back home through, through the credit card. And that travel must be for a purpose that is halal. If he's stranded in Las Vegas, <laughs> he was pickpocketed in Las Vegas and he was spending the weekend gambling all his money. Let's say he wasn't even pickpocketed, he just spent it all. And he's stranded, no credit cards even. And then he goes to, you know, whatever masjids in Las Vegas. I was always curious about that because there are masajid. I always wonder, like, what do you do there? It's weird. Yeah, you've been? Okay, you can tell us. They go to the masjid and they say, I need zakat money, you know, because I spent all my money. Well, technically, they're not eligible for zakat because they were spending, they lost their money due to haram. And their travel was for haram purpose. Uh, does that mean they're stranded forever? No, you can give them sadaqah. You can help them get back, but not from the zakat funds. Sadaqah, sure, that's your own money, but not the zakat funds. So these are the eight categories. When you're distributing it, there's a lot of stuff. I'm going over the time here. Um, primarily, the zakat in the traditional society is collected and it's at the discretion of the leader, the sultan, to determine who gets what. And he will appoint people to do that. But in our day and age, it's all up to us, right? There's no clear-cut guideline for who gets how much and how you disperse the zakat across these eight categories. But we can say that from the eight categories, the first two have more right to it than anyone else, the fuqara and the masakin. So when you're getting rid of that zakat money, you want to probably focus on the first two categories. And if you want to distribute it, consider some of the others, but make those the priority. The destitute and poor have more right than the rest. So you want to consider who has the most needs. Now, who's getting it? Is it going international? Is it being distributed locally? The ideal is that it's local. And that means you need to know the conditions of the people in your community. You have to get to know them and know what's going on in their life. So this is why the ideal is always to distribute it locally. Now, it's valid to pay them cash directly. It's also valid to pay for whatever things they need paying for. So that could be rent, it could be bills, it could be you could buy a bunch of groceries with the zakat money and give it to them if they are needing money for food. You, you can do that, and sometimes that is the wisest position, especially for a person working on behest of the masjid, because they have to, you know, there's an application process, there's a filtering process, and we are in a day where, in day and age where you can't just have husnul dhan for everybody. You can't just have a good opinion about everyone and assume the best, because then you'll be robbed blind from people who don't deserve zakat. You have a person who's sought zakat from every single masjid in the entire area and you're the last masjid to, they're going to get money for them to use for whatever, God knows what. So you have to verify and when you verify, a part of that could be the bills and you could pay it on their behalf. It, it is what it is. And you know, you want to limit any possible embarrassment but at the same time you have to have your tahari, your, your due diligence to make sure that they're lawful recipients. It's ideal to give it to your locality and generally it's makru to send it outside. Uh, however, you can send it outside if it's to a relative or to people who are in greater need, right? Say, say like people in Pakistan who are suffering from the aftermath of these floods. You could argue that they're in greater need of that zakat money for their immediate need after the flood than someone perhaps locally. That argument could be made. So that would be fine. Or if you want to give it to some pious person who is more pious than everyone else in your community and you, want to, you just want to give them zakat, you can do that too if they're not in your locality. Ibn Abidin, rahimahullah, the great Hanafi scholar, he says the best charity is that which fulfills the greatest need or is a means to the greatest benefit. And that for me is why I tend to prefer distributing the zakat some local and a lot internationally because the dollar travels further internationally than it does locally. I like it to be local and also international so that you know you pay X amount of zakat 
it's feeding so many families as compared to giving it here. But you can't neglect zakat here either. So don't put all the eggs in one basket over there. Distribute it if you're going to distribute it. Or if you want to keep it all in one place, locally is the ideal. But that means you need to know who you're dealing with and you have to give to them. All right. Uh, I feel like I'm rushing, but we'll close with this, inshallah. This is an act of worship. And it is a duty from Allah Ta'ala. And that requires from us to have certain internal qualities and certain adab when we do this act of worship. We have to have a good intention. Without that intention, we have paid the zakat, lifting the obligation, but we're not getting reward unless we have a good intention. And we have to give it without delay, and it's good to give it at blessed times. That's why we mentioned this mixed business way of doing it all at once, perhaps in Ramadan. It's also good to give it secretly, unless you are a person that others are emulating, and by giving it publicly, you're encouraging others. But when you do that, you don't want to give to someone in a way that's going to embarrass them, if it's public. And to not spoil the zakat with al-man wal-adha, to not spoil your zakat with entitled behavior towards the one you gave zakat, or reminding them about your zakat as a favor. You have to realize that whoever receives your zakat is doing you a favor. So that's an internal etiquette you have to have. Anyone who gives zakat and thinks that I now have a favor over that person, that you know, I can call that favor back in whenever I need it later on, that is very dangerous because they are helping you. They're helping you more than you're helping them because that zakat is purifying the rest of your money so that you have barakah and it's not leading to your own destruction. So this inshallah summarizes uh, the fard ayn of zakat and then some. Uh, there'll, there'll be no test for this. The slides here you'll notice are very detailed and the purpose is for you to keep them so that if you're referring to these things every six months or year as you review your fard ayn, you can refer back to these slides inshallah. And once we're done, my intention is to put all of the slides together into a single document where not, with, not as slides, but as an actual book and organize it a little better so that you can have a quick reference you can always go back to to remind yourself of how to do these different things. I know there were some questions. We are past the time slightly. Uh, what do you think? Take them. You closed it? No. It's still open? Well, okay, I'm leading the salon so we can extend it. Uh, if we could take, I'll take two questions. If uh, your hand was up, mine, mine was a simple question. it was simple. Yeah. Did you have your hand? Up? Uh, yes, for the liabilities, uh, do, you, do you calculate them over the entire year or just one month? Like, let's say the mortgage. Yeah, the month. Yeah, because we're talking about the immediate debt, not the long term debt. So it's just the immediate debt that's due on you that month contractually. That's what you're deducting. Yeah. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. A quick one. Like, I know you said it, it should go to the person and not the organization. But there are Muslim legal funds that they are going to be paid for this presentation here. And they said, using that category of freeing the slaves. Because they do provide legal services to those who have been unlawfully or unjustifiably held in and those are people. So, yeah. Well, yeah, what I mean is you're not giving zakat for uh, a microphone or for a chandelier or a wudu station. Ultimately, it's going to go to one of those eight categories. Yeah. 